All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, this is our text this morning. And before we go there, we're going to ask God to bless the preaching of His Word today. So let's pray together. Lord, we come to you today and we remind ourselves, God, in your presence that holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts and the whole earth is full of your glory. God, give us eyes to see it today, Lord. Be gracious to us, your people. God, your word says that those who know your name, they put their trust in you. And we do that right now, Lord. We give praise to you, the Lord our God, the one who has trampled our iniquity under his feet and has washed us clean in the blood of Jesus. Lord, help us to dare to believe that today, that we, those sinners, to the core of our being, have been declared righteous forever through the work of the gospel for every Christian in this room, Lord. Open our eyes to the glory of Jesus Christ today, Lord. Use your word, God, in our life. God, we ask that you would visit us today in the power of the Holy Spirit and that you would speak to us through your word. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters all across this room, Lord, that you would show us your glory today. That you would reveal yourself. That you would give us a mighty glimpse of who you are, God. That gives real encouragement, real nourishment to our souls. God, we pray that you would cause worship to rise up today. As we hear your word proclaimed. God, help us to hear it rightly. Lord, we pray that you would use your word and your church today to increase us. In our knowledge of God, in our knowledge of you, Lord, in our knowledge of your great salvation. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to remind us, as we make our way to our text this morning, that the one true God, the God who rules over all things, the one true God is a merciful God. And I want us to think about how much different this world would be and your life would be if the one true God, the one with all power, was not a merciful God. Drastically different. But praise to his name. He is who he's always been. And from the very core of who the one true God is, he's a God of mercy. Yes, he's a righteous God. Yes, he's a holy God. But the Bible tells us that he's also a savior and a merciful God that puts away the sins of his people. And really from the very beginning of the Bible, God has revealed this part of his character to us, that he's a God of mercy. And so from the very earliest chapters of scripture, we, we run into this plan that God has revealed to save the entire world. I'll give you just a glimpse of this. As early as Genesis chapter 12, this one true God makes a promise to this man named Abraham that one of the offspring of Abraham will bring blessing to all the families of the earth. To all the families of the earth. To all the families of the earth. They will be blessed in the offspring of Abraham. And as we read through Holy Scripture, we see glimpses of that all nations promise, all nations salvation. And in a very real sense, those promises sit dormant on the pages of Scripture for hundreds and even thousands of years until we come to Jesus. Until we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham, the one who is destined to. To bring blessing to all the nations of the earth. And we've been giving attention to that as we study through the book of Acts together. That we're seeing for the first time in human history. We're seeing that all nations 
salvation spread out to all the peoples of the earth. And we've been looking at that. The book of Acts. Jesus prophesied that through these men that they would bear witness for Jesus Christ. Not only in Jerusalem, but also in Judea, also in Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And I want to remind us that this all nations mission is certain. It's a certain thing. For two reasons at least. It's certain, number one, because it's flowing from the merciful heart of God. God is merciful. God has ordained to save a people from all nations. And God doesn't just have plans. He also has a hand to accomplish his plans among the nations. And so that mission, not only does it flow from the mercy of God, it's secured by the power of God that he is certainly able to bring about his all nations plan. And that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through the true offspring of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, our text, we're going to give attention to the very first time that the gospel jumps from being a Jewish thing and it begins to jump into another people group, another people group. This is not the last time that this is going to happen in the book of Acts. And this is the fulfillment of that prophecy that Jesus made. He told us, you will be my witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, but also in Judea, and then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And so this is where we're headed this morning. Gospel going to unreached people groups. And we're going to read our text together, Acts chapter 8. Now this is a long passage. And so I want to make sure I don't lose you. So I want to ask you to stand up. As I read through Acts 8, beginning in verse 5, we'll stand as we read God's word together. It's the word of God to Grace Community Church today. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them that they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. 
For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is God's word to our local church today. You can be seated. This is a story about the gospel of Jesus Christ conquering and triumphing among an unreached people group. A people that did not worship Jesus. And then this story happens and now they worship Jesus Christ. This is that king that's sitting at the right hand of God, extending his kingdom and flexing his royal dominion. This is the triumph of the gospel among the Samaritan people. And what Luke does for us in this passage is he sketches for us the background that these Samaritans were involved in. And there's a religious background there. And he sketches a story for us that these people are enslaved to a false religion. Okay? It's really important for us to understand the depths to which they were enslaved so we get a glimpse of how powerful this gospel of Jesus is that brought their liberation. And so I want us to, to think about this for just a moment. Luke tells us that the entire city was under the spell of a religious leader named Simon who was a practicer of magic. And what that means is that he was skilled and he practiced the secret arts of uh, the demonic realm. He was a magician. He was a religious leader. Verse 10 tells us that his grip was so strong in this city. Look at what it says. That, that, that they all paid attention to him. And then, and then it says this. From the least to the greatest. So I want you to imagine that. That's pretty vivid. They all paid attention to this man from the least of them to the greatest. So this religious leader, this magician operating under demonic power in Samaria, he has tremendous sway over this entire city from the least of them to the greatest. What are they doing? Keep reading in verse 10. They are worshiping this man as a god. Look at what it says in verse 10. They are saying about Simon, this man is the power of God. That's blasphemy. This man is the power of God. They are engaging in idolatry. This is false religion and false worship. Second century church leader Justin Martyr bears witness to this, that not only are the Samaritans guilty of worshiping Simon as a god, but as time continues at this point in the Roman Empire, he tells us that even some of the Romans in the city of Rome are worshiping Simon as a god. This man is the power of God. They're worshiping him as a god in a human body. And so I want us to see that, that his influence in this city is pervasive, pervasive. His grip is of the strongest kind. And Luke is setting this up uh, for a spiritual conflict. There's about to be a power encounter in the city of Samaria. And what, what Luke is setting this up for is that there's a greater power needed. These people need a greater power to set them free from demonic bondage. They are enslaved to their sin. They are enslaved to Satan through this false religion. And they need a liberating power that is stronger than the power of Satan. As practiced through this man named Simon. So that's our background. And then the answer that Luke provides for us. The greater power that Luke shows us. Is that Philip brings it in, in verse 5. Look at what it says. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them 
the Christ and proclaim to them the Christ. So we have the stage set and now the sparks are, are, are going to fly that there's real satanic power in this city. But a greater power just came on the scene. He went and he proclaimed to them King Jesus. Now I want you to remember, you think Philip remembered these words of Jesus Christ and his great commission that Jesus said. One of the things that he said about himself is this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go make disciples of all the nations. And so he comes with the name on his lips into this city that's in bondage to false religion and Satan. And he begins to announce the name of the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Verse 12 tells us that he preached good news about the kingdom of God. About the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. So he did not walk into this city with a message of condemnation. He preached good news. He preached about the most powerful of kings. The most powerful of names. And he didn't come in and say, you bunch of idiots. You're going to bust hell wide open. He came and he announced Jesus. Jesus is the king. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus has done something to set you free from sin and Satan. He brought good news to a people who were enslaved to sin and Satan. Now I want us to pause and I want us to consider something just at, at the outset this morning. I want you to think about this morning. I want you to give some some thought to this, what would make one man, I'll say that again, one man, what would cause one man to enter into Satan's domain, a city where Satan holds tremendous sway, almost universal sway, what would make one man go into this place with an intent to do spiritual conflict? What in the world's going on in the mind of a man that would make one man take on thousands in spiritual conflict? I want you to think about that. What, what would make someone do that? And here's something I just want to lay before you. I'm persuaded that the only reason that Philip went into the city that was under the power and dominion of Satan, I'm persuaded that the only reason he went in is that he was convinced that he could win. He was not intimidated by demonic power, demonic de dominion, the power of false religion. I would submit to you that he went into that city because he was convinced that he could win. And what I don't mean is that Philip was just filled with self-confidence. That's not what I'm talking about. I don't think that he was going into this city just beating his chest. I'm the man. I got this. I'm the man. I don't think that's the confidence that we're talking about here. So I want us, what I want us to think through, this, this has tremendous personal application to your life. What would cause a man, what would cause a woman to do that? And I think the reminder for us is that we have to remember as we read through the book of Acts, we have to remember that, that Philip is not by himself. He is not. Philip is not by himself and he is not empty handed. Okay. Philip is, is filled with the spirit of the risen, resurrected Lord of all. Jesus is with him. Okay. He's not by himself. And one man going into a city that's under Satan's dominion with Jesus, that's a majority. That's not minority. The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth is with him. He's convinced that he can win because Jesus is with him. And neither is he without weapons. He's not going empty-handed into Samaria. He has the most powerful weapon in the universe. In the universe. Sometimes you hear it said that zealous Christians could storm hell with a water pistol. Raise your hand if you've heard that. Sometimes you hear that said. Zealous Christians could storm hell 
with the water pistol. That's just kind of a thing, you know, we've grown up hearing that at random times. Storm hell with a water pistol. Now I want you to think about that. Is that really a good idea? So just, you know, this, this is just a piece of advice, okay, uh, to really think through that. If all you have is a water pistol, my advice to you would be that you never storm hell, okay? So I want, I want you to think about that. If all you have is a squirt gun, you've got no business in, in spiritual conflict with the ancient serpent, the enemy of God, Satan and his demons. So if all you have is a water pistol, my suspicion is that you are about to get worked a million times over by Satan and his demonic power. Okay? So let's, let's think about that. We need more than a water pistol, right? We need more than a squirt gun to go in Satan's domain and enter into spiritual conflict. And praise the Lord, we have it. Every one of you, brother and sister in Christ, you have the most powerful weapon in the universe. You have the gospel. You have the message of Jesus Christ, the crucified, resurrected, ascended, and reigning Lord. You have that message. You have something 10 million times more powerful than a nuclear weapon. You have the message of Jesus. You cling to it for salvation. And there's a real opportunity for you to have that weapon on your lips. Philip had a more powerful weapon than a water pistol. He went into Samaria and he preached to them the Christ. He had the gospel. And he swung it like a spiritual weapon. He swung it like a sword. He preached Christ. Romans 1, 16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And we need encouragement that we would think about the gospel like that. Not only that the gospel and the, and the news about Jesus, not only is it true. It is true. It's the word of truth. Not only is it from God and God's testimony about his son. It is. But brothers and sisters. It is powerful. Those words about Jesus Christ. That have been revealed to us. From the scriptures. They are the power of God. For salvation. The most powerful weapon. In the universe. And we see a demonstration. Of the power of this gospel. And how the Samaritans respond. To that message of Jesus. Look at verse 6. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said. Think about that and remember, that's the same crowd that worshiped Simon from the least of them to the greatest. Okay? Idol worshipers. And now, this gospel is being announced and we are told with one accord. They are paying attention to the gospel. They're receiving the message of Jesus Christ. Later on in Acts 8, verse 12, we are told that this crowd believes and this crowd is baptized. They receive it. That, that Jesus is announced and the power of that false religion, it's broken and they're saved. They receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a power encounter and we're getting a glimpse of the power and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just so we know that this response that we're reading about in Acts 8, this is not just an intellectual only response to where someone hears about the gospel of Jesus and intellectually affirms a few things about that gospel. Yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, I believe that He died for my sins. This is not the type of response that He's sketching out for us in Acts 8. This is a heartfelt response, a sincere response that Jesus is Lord and clinging to him for salvation. Look at what Luke says in verse 8. When he summarizes this, he says, there was much joy in that city. They didn't just hear things about Jesus and say, you know what? I was deceived, but now I believe that. That's true. It went further than that, and they heard that gospel as the best thing that had ever rolled across 
their ears that Jesus came to save me. And they received that gospel. And you know what happened? That burden of sin that felt like hundreds of pounds on their back. Through the work of Jesus, that burden of sin fell off of them. And they were filled with the joy of sin forgiven. The joy of being set free from Satan's grip. Satan's enslavement. This salvation in the city is so widespread that when the news of what happened makes its way back to Jerusalem, in verse 14, we're told this. This, this simple little phrase. The Samaritans have received the word of God. Think about that. That's a nation. That's a people group. This would be like America has received the word of God. Mexico has received the word of God. Tremendous statement about the power of Jesus, the power of his gospel and its effect among the Samaritan people. That the gospel had so saturated Samaria that it could be said they received it corporately. This is no longer an unreached people group. This is now a reached people group. There's a church here. There, that there is Samaritans now that are calling on the name of Jesus. They, they have received the word of God. Now, I want, us, I want us to think about how this relates to us. Because I think there's some real encouragement for us here. This idea of a people group going from unreached to reached in Acts 8, that happens through one man. That happens through one man. And all he's doing in Acts 8 is preaching one message. One man, one message, and the Spirit of God falls on this proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And an unreached people group becomes a reached people group. Now that's encouraging to us. Because that one man was not an apostle. And we have no indication in this story that he walks into this city and gives special revelation, special words from God. Every indication in how this is laid out is all he did is he walked into the city and he preached the apostolic gospel, the same gospel that we have. And so there's real encouragement for us here that we have the same spirit that he had. The same spirit that he was filled with, Philip, dwells in every follower of Christ, every single believer. Will you dare to believe that? Not only that, the same gospel, the same testimony of Jesus by the apostles. We have that in God's word. This is the word of the apostles. We have the same gospel and the same spirit. And the encouragement for us there is that there's no end to what God can do with the gospel of Jesus in the mouth of a Christian. There's no end to it. So think about this. If he can do this in a people group, what can he do in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in this city, in a local church? There's no end to it. Gospel in the mouth of Christians and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see King Jesus extending his dominion. And I want us to be reminded about that. When we preach Jesus, we are wielding the most powerful weapon in the entire universe. And even if Satan were to throw every ounce of his power and authority, he is no match for the word of Christ in the mouth of Christians filled with the spirit of God. This is what we see here in Acts 8. The triumph of the gospel. The triumph of of King Jesus. As the story continues. In Acts 8. Something surprising happens. In spite of. This widespread acceptance. Of the gospel. Samaria has received the word of God. Luke tells us. That something is missing. In this story. And what we see is that in spite of this people on a wide scale responding to the gospel, the gift of the Holy Spirit is delayed. It has not yet been given. This is a big deal. Okay, This is worth stopping 
and thinking through what are we seeing here? What are we supposed to learn from this? So let's read this in verse 14. Here's what happened. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, I hope the difficulty here is obvious to you, okay? Because the difficulty is this. We have an example of someone believing the gospel about Jesus. Even being baptized into the name of the triune God. And yet not receiving the third person of the Trinity. This is a big deal. And it's really, really odd. Okay, Even in the book of Acts, as you're reading through this, you're supposed to stop and say, wait a second. That's not what's supposed to happen right there. So I want to remind us that back in... Back in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that there was already a promise laid out. I'll read it to you. This is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. He says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter promises... The gift of the Holy Spirit immediately following repentance and baptism. And yet here, we see it delayed. So even on the day of Pentecost, there was no prayer made by... There was no hands laid on the crowd by the apostles. The Spirit was given. The people believed and the Spirit was given. And this is what the promise says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. So, why the delay? If that's the promise, repent, be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why the delay in Acts 8? And I think if we're to understand this rightly, we've got to pay some careful attention to some unique things that are happening in Acts 8. And in order to understand this rightly, we have to understand some long-standing tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. Okay? This is not a story of just a bunch of people getting saved. This is a unique moment in redemptive history where the gospel is spreading out from a Jewish thing and it's beginning to go to all nations. Jews, Samaritans, and then the next stop in the book of Acts is going to be the Gentiles, the nations. It's a very unique moment. And there's some real hostility between these peoples, between the Jews and the Samaritans. In fact, at this point, there's been over a thousand years of hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. If you read the book of 1 Kings, shortly after uh, King Solomon's reign, about a thousand years before Christ, the kingdom of Israel was divided. There was a schism, and the kingdom of Israel was split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And when that schism happened and there was a division in the kingdom of Israel, almost every tribe defected to this area known as Samaria. And when they did, they set up a counterfeit kingdom in Israel. And as time went on, and even, even uh, by, the, by the 4th century B.C., these, this counterfeit group in Israel, they even set up their own temple. On Mount Garrison in Samaria. They even had their own priesthood. And even in the days of Jeroboam, they set up these golden calves and they set up idolatrous worship in Israel. They were a counterfeit group. And so from the very beginning, they were hated as apostate. Okay? They were hated, they were associated with apostasy. And then they even add more hostility in the centuries prior to Jesus. This area was populated with foreigners from all over the Roman Empire. So all these foreigners began to gather into this region known as Samaria. And you have double tension at this point. Religious hostility and ethnic hostility. 
And so there was real hatred from Jews toward Samaritans. Okay? They viewed them twofold. Not only did they see them as half-breeds, that's ethnic hostility. They also saw them as heretics, that's religious apostates. Tremendous hostility from Jews to the Samaritans. And as the New Testament time period rolls around, that hostility is so tense that we read these words in John chapter 4, verse 9. Simple. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It's just a statement of fact. That's, that's the setting that we're talking about in Acts 8. We're talking about the setting, cultural setting, to where Jews, not a little bit of dealings, they have no dealings with the Samaritans. They separate, they're hostile to, they persecute, they reject. They have no dealings with the Samaritans. And so, in Acts 8, when the Samaritans receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's a real danger that could play out in the early church. And that danger is this, that they receive Jesus and then they're rejected by the Jewish Christians. Their, their, their Jewish brothers and sisters would ostracize them and reject them. And look at them as second class followers of Jesus. That is a real danger that's hanging behind this scenario. And so what we see in this unique story where the gospel jumps into this hostile grid that God gives a very unique sign to confirm that these Samaritans have been pulled all the way in to the salvation that Jesus has accomplished. And what we see is basically a Pentecost number two. Okay? That the apostles come and they lay hands and they pray and the Spirit of God is given in a very visible clear, authentic way that with your eyes, you can look and say, oh, God just gave them the Spirit. And the idea is when that happens, the apostles witness it and the apostles see that God has given the Samaritans the same Spirit that God has given the Jews. And they're made one body in Jesus Christ. And so there's a real unique event happening here that God is seeing to it that the body of Christ, this early church, is not divided by long-standing hostilities. Visible sign given to confirm the gospel of Christ. Next time the gospel jumps in the book of Acts, it jumps to the Gentiles. That's us. That word just simply means nations. And the interesting thing is this happens the next the same thing happens the next time that gospel makes that jump with the same view in mind that when the Gentiles receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is a very visible demonstration of the giving of the Holy Spirit witnessed by the apostles. And the idea there is they have received the same salvation that the Jews have received. Not second class salvation. They've been pulled in to the same body. The same spirit that was given to Peter. Is given to the Samaritans. And eventually to the Gentiles. I want you to turn to Acts 11. And we'll read this really quick. When the gospel jumps to the nations. Peter recounts this moment. Beginning in verse 15. He says as I began to speak. The Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Pentecost number three. And I remembered the word of the Lord. How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to 
to life. We see this very clearly. What effect did this sign produce? This very visible giving of the Spirit. It produced that takeaway. They got the same salvation that we did. God gave them the same Spirit that He gave us. They're one body in Christ. And the important thing there is that we learn how to read the book of Acts. Okay? we got to learn how to read the book of Acts. There's more going on here than just people getting saved in the way that people get saved today. This is the very beginning of church history. This is, there's some real jumps that are taking place in the book of Acts. One of which, and it's not small, is the gospel not being a Jewish thing, but going to all the nations of the earth. Fulfilling that Genesis 12 promise that Jesus is going to bring blessing to all the families of the earth. And one of the things that that means is that Acts 8, it does not teach Pentecostal theology that says that you become a Christian at this point in time in your life. And then at a separate point in time in your life, you get the Holy Spirit. Acts 8 does not teach that. Okay? It does not teach that there's JV Christians and varsity Christians. That would be a wrong way to read Acts 8. The right way to read it is we have to have that unique grid, unique redemptive history is happening in Acts 8. And if we don't have that, we're not doing justice to, to the book of Acts or really the whole Bible. That that promise that's been sitting dormant since Genesis 12, it's happening. Jesus is doing that. That salvation is being extended to all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth. Christians today... Receive the Holy Spirit when they believe. This is verbatim exactly what Ephesians 1 verse 13 says. Christians today receive the Holy Spirit the very moment they believe. And my encouragement to you is do not let, let this two-stage Christianity, don't let that stuff land on you. Don't let that stuff make you feel like a second-class Christian. If you are in Christ, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is yours in Jesus. It belongs to you. And you got Jesus, you got everything. Nothing left out. You're called all the way into salvation, all the way into the body of Christ, given every spiritual blessing that Jesus has purchased for you. So it's important that we learn how to read the book of Acts. You see these unique moments for what they communicate. Third thing that Luke shows us in this passage, and this is a really good reminder for us to close on, is we have these surprising things that sit side by side. So I want you to think through this with me just for a moment. The first glimpse we got is of the power of the gospel of Jesus. It's power to triumph over false religion. Okay? And the second glimpse we got is a real outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so everything that we know about this passage so far is it's genuine. Real gospels being preached. Real men of God are preaching it. And the real Holy Spirit is being poured out. And then you have this surprising thing sitting side by side. That in that environment, not in any other environment, in that environment, we bump into the reality of false conversion. Reality of false conversion. This man named Simon is revealed in this passage to be a false convert. We want to think about that for a moment together. It begins in verse 9 by describing Simon as a proud man. Look at what it says in verse 9. He went around at the end of verse 9 saying... That he himself was somebody great. That strike one, two, and three. All in one sentence. He is a man filled with pride. And he's going around saying, I'm great. I'm great. I'm the greatest. I'm great. So we have a proud man. And then, in verse 13, we see that this proud man makes a response to the gospel of Jesus. And I want you to notice three things he did in verse 13. We are told that he believed. We are told that he was baptized. 
And then we are told that he continued. Now, if you stop right there, you're thinking, that sounds pretty good to me. That sounds pretty good. That a proud man believed the gospel, that he was baptized, and that for a time he continued. And I want us to think about this. Do those three words mean that this man was saved? He believed, he was baptized, and he continued. And there's, there's a real warning for us in this passage. Okay? And there's a reality that we need to be aware of. That these things only lead to salvation in someone's life if they're sincere. Okay? And what Luke shows us in Acts 8 is an insincere response to the gospel. An insincere response to the gospel. As you're reading through, you're tipped off. To a, to a problem developing in verse 13. At the end of verse 13, we read these words. Seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. He was amazed. The Bible does not say that he was amazed by Jesus Christ. The Bible does not say that he was amazed by the salvation that Jesus came to accomplish. The Bible does not say that he was amazed by Jesus' power to, to, to convict of sin, the Bible says that he was amazed by miracles. A magician amazed by miracles. So that's a little warning there as we're reading through before we get to the moment that he's actually exposed. And the important thing for us to think about is false conversion always gets the object of faith wrong. Always. False conversion always gets the object of faith wrong. Or you can say it this way. The object of the faith of a false convert is never Jesus Christ, period. Okay? The object of the faith of a false convert is something that Jesus can give me. Something that Jesus can do for me. You see this today in the prosperity gospel. That people come to Christ... Not because they're stabbed in the heart and have conviction of sin. You see people come to Christ because they, they want a more prosperous life. That they want more purpose. False conversion is always like that. The object of faith is wrong. It's off. It's not the person of Jesus Himself. This faith that, that Simon exercises in Acts 8, it's called faith. But it's insincere faith because it's directed at the wrong object. He's a miracle addict. He's lusting for, he wants supernatural power. He wants all the things that that supernatural power can give him. He is not clinging to the Lord Jesus. And this is not the only time this happens in the New Testament. This faith that we're reading about in Simon and Acts 8, this is the same faith that we read about back in the Gospel of John. Turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. This is about Jesus and the crowds. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Sound familiar? But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him. For he himself knew what was in man. Same thing. You have a surface level response to the things that Jesus does and Jesus does not respond to that kind of faith. To that surface level faith. He does not entrust himself to, be, to people that believe in this way. In this insincere way. This is false faith. This is a false faith of a false convert. Now the thing that we need to understand and learn well. Is that you could not discern this in Simon's life immediately. Some time went by before this was exposed. Some time went by before he was exposed as a false convert. But then this one instance happened. This one thing. 
And that one thing revealed more than Simon was a sinner. Okay? It revealed more than that. It revealed that he was a false convert. Okay? There's a difference. Okay? When we sin, it reveals that we're sinners. But when he sins in this passage, it shows that there's a much deeper problem in Simon's life. He's not converted. He is not in Christ Jesus. He's not saved. Okay? So I want us to see this. In verse 19, what was this instance that happened that, that threw the lights on that this man is not in Christ? Thought he was, thought he was, and then now we see that he's not. Verse 19. He looks at Peter and he sees what happened when Peter lays his hands on the crowd and prays that they receive the Holy Spirit. And he basically says, I want some of that. Here's some money. And he offers to buy the Holy Spirit. He offers to purchase the third person of the triune God. The sovereign God. The God who owns the cattle of a thousand hills. Has need of nothing. Is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. And he offers to buy that God for some money. And then I want us to see why. To what end. And then it's and it's to the end of selfish gain. That I want to be able to lay my hands on anybody. And anybody on whom I lay my hands. That they will receive the Spirit. Just like what happened with Peter. And so he has this desire to distribute the third person of the Trinity at will. At will. No heart to submit to the Spirit of God. He wants to sling around the Spirit of God as he wills. And once this thing happens in his life, it becomes really clear that this magician, this idol worshiper, that used power to manipulate crowds for his own purposes, he has not repented. He has not came out of that old way of living. And Peter discerns this, that he says, you have no share, verse 21, you have no lot. He's talking about salvation. You have no share, you have no lot. You don't have salvation, you don't have a spot in the church. And then he goes on to say, your heart is not right before God. He's exposed as a false convert. He professes Christ. The man is baptized. The man is around the church. But this man is lost. He's lost. And that's the reality of false conversion. Time goes by and then this man is exposed. I want us to notice Peter's response. It would almost certainly in our day be labeled with some of the following words. This was mean of Peter. This was judgy of Peter. This was harsh of Peter. This was not gracious of Peter. And we're going we're to consider that for just a moment. Okay? We got to be careful in our modern day understanding of words like love and kindness and gentleness and patience that we don't speak about those things in such a way that we don't have a place for how Peter responds to this false convert in Acts chapter 8. Notice in verse 20. He said, May your silver perish with you. That's a curse. Peter cursed him in the name of the Lord. He cursed him. May your silver perish with you. One commentator said that Peter basically said, To hell with you for this wickedness. It's a curse in the name of the Lord. So, what I want us to see here is he's refusing, in this instance, he's refusing to deal with Simon as a victim. His response to Simon is not to treat him as a victim and figure out all the bad stuff that happened in your life that would make you have this wicked thought. And he does the exact opposite and he treats Simon like a criminal who is guilty before God. He calls the man wicked. He tells the man, you are unfit to stand in the presence of God. May you perish and your silver with you. 
This is a serious response to false conversion. It's a sober response to false conversion. It's a bold response to false conversion. And I want you to think about why. What does Peter know that we have a lot of trouble with? What Peter knows is life and death is on the line. Life and death is on the line in this story. This man has the wrath of God that abides on him. Life and death is at stake. The eternal uh, state of this man's soul is at stake. So he deals with him seriously. There's an urgency in his speech. We've got to have a place for that. In the way that we understand false conversion in dealing with false conversion. I am not suggesting in any way that anybody in this church begin to pronounce curses in the name of Christ. I'm not suggesting that in any way, but I am suggesting that false converts need to be spoken about. They need to be spoken to with a seriousness. This stuff is serious. You are not fit to stand in God's presence. You must repent. You must turn away. You are not safe. You are in eternal danger. And there's another reality in this text that I want us to think about as a local church. And that reality is that this false conversion stands side by side with the real move of the Holy Spirit. With the real gospel being preached. Real Holy Spirit dwelling in the midst of the church. And I want to bring that same reality into Grace Community Church. And I want to remind us of something. Okay? If the Lord blesses our church with the best of preaching, the best of preaching, if the Lord blesses our church with the most godly membership, if the Lord blesses our church with, where the Spirit of God is, 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 is falling on us and we're full of the Holy Spirit, I want to remind us that even if we were to obtain the best of environments, as a local church, we will never evade the reality of false conversion. Do you see that in this passage? True gospel being preached. Men of God preaching that gospel. Apostles even running in and out of this church. Spirit of God dwelling in the midst of this church. And even still, you have false conversion. False conversion. We need to be prepared for that. That's just, all that is, is just reality. That's the real Christian life that we are to be prepared for. And bringing this all the way in to our local church is that when false converts are exposed at Grace Community Church through repetitive, unrepentant sin, and the way that this will come out almost always is through church discipline, I want to encourage us that that does not mean that something is wrong with our church. That's not the first pivot that we need to think about when we see false conversion is, man, what is wrong with us? What is wrong with us? What we see in this principle in Acts 8 is even in the best of environments, we have no hope of evading, evading this. We have to learn how to respond to it. We have to learn how to respond to it. And so when this happens, I want to just help us. The focus is not on what is wrong with us. What are we doing wrong? What, what part of our message do we need to adjust? Does the Spirit of God really dwell in the midst of this church? Is the Holy Spirit not at work in this church? And instead, we would learn this principle well. That even if all of those things are there, we still have to deal with this reality a false conversion. Instead of focus being on what's wrong with us, what's wrong with us, I think we can be instructed from this passage that we would learn to respond just like Peter in this passage. That we would learn to address the real eternal needs of false converts. That we would learn to speak with sincerity, with seriousness, and with urgency to those who are exposed as false converts that so we would call them to repentance. Your heart is not right before God. Repent. Repent. Turn away. You are not saved. 
sincerely calling to repentance. I want to close and mention in false conversion. And I want to say this. I want to end on a note of assurance. I know how this works. I know how this works. You mention false conversion and some people's mind immediately goes, am I really saved? Am I really saved? Am I really a Christian? So I want to speak to you for just a moment. If your conscience has been stung in recent days about your sin, if your conscience has been stung in recent days about your sin, and you find yourself often asking that question, am I really a follower of Christ? Am I like this man that I see in Acts 8? Am I a false convert, Lord? I don't know. I don't know. My encouragement to you is that you would refuse to stay in that place of perpetually examining yourself. Stop looking at yourself over and over and over again. Am I a false convert? Am I a false convert? And instead, just repent. Just turn away from that sin and flee to Jesus Christ. And you have promises from God's Word that if you do that, if you repent, if you cling to Jesus, He will never cast you out. He will never turn you away. He has never turned anyone who has repented of their sin. He has never turned them away. And he will never turn them away. We've got to be careful not to get stuck in that perpetual looking at ourselves. We have to flee to Christ. We have to cling to the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word today. And we ask, God, that you would encourage us, Lord, with your word. That you would teach us how to think and how to live as your disciples. And, God, we ask for strength, Lord, from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.